This is episode seven of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm Paula Davis-Lack, author, entrepreneur, and expert in burnout prevention and resilience. If you want to break free from the busyness of life and truly thrive, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my good friend, Tom Hefner. When being selfless becomes your default response, where more often than not, no matter who comes to you asking for help, no matter how urgent their need, no matter how well suited you are to be the person to help them, you default to trying to do whatever you can. Um, and that's where it starts to really take a toll. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today, you and I have an incredible opportunity to learn from Wharton People Analytics researcher and frequent Harvard Business Review author, Reb Rebeli. His research in behavioral science is changing the way organizations do business and the way we experience work. In our conversation, I'll be asking Reb about what pro-social behavior is, why it's important, and how we can cultivate it at work. The four keys to developing a fulfilling and meaningful career, book recommendations to help us deal with difficult coworkers, and how we can better rest and recover from work, and plenty of other key insights and practical lessons. Reb Rebley is not only my friend, but he's a researcher for the UPenn Wharton People Analytics Initiative and teaches in the Master of Applied Positive Psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania, also known as the MAP program. His research, writing, and consulting projects bring behavioral science and research into the world of work to drive better employee experiences and organizational outcomes. Reb earned his own MAP degree in 2010 after spending his early career with the United States Mint in Kaplan. Since MAP, he has been a frequent collaborator of Professor Adam Grant on the topics of giving and originality. Part of a resilience training team working with the U.S. Army and groups of educators, and a speaker on a number of applied psychology topics. His writing has appeared in books such as Flourishing in Work, Life and Careers, and magazines such as Harvard Business Review, and finally online in the Huffington Post and one of my favorite, Psychology Today. Reb, thank you so much for being here today and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll have a chance to hear from Reb very soon to discuss his work on applying behavioral research to the world of work. But first, let's dive into his background a bit. Reb, you've had a very interesting journey in your career thus far. You worked for the United States Mint. I think you're probably the only person I've ever met that has worked there. And then in the education test prep world of Kaplan, before finding your home in the Wharton Business School at UPenn. And how did you go from working in business to now studying business? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it certainly wasn't, wasn't the plan originally, um, but I'm sort of happy with how things have turned out. You know, my first job uh, out of undergrad, I studied marketing and entrepreneurship. I was interested in journalism. Uh, I didn't actually take any psychology classes in undergrad, even though I was sort of interested in the ideas. Um, but I was looking for a good job, wanted to be down in the D.C. area. And I got a job in marketing for the Mint, 
Um, so literally my first job was to sell money for more money for people who wanted to collect money. Uh, <laughs> That's a lot of money right there. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting job. There were a lot of you know good things that I learned about marketing and management and business planning. But I started getting interested in, okay, well, what can I do that might have more of sort of an impact on people? So I started teaching part-time for Kaplan, the test prep company. Uh, and when I got in the classroom, I found that I really loved teaching. And I loved getting in front of a room of people and trying to help them achieve their educational goals. Uh, so then I switched over to Kaplan for the sort of rest of my early career. And it was while I was there that I started reading a lot of um, sort of popular books on psychology and related topics. So started with Malcolm Gladwell and, you know, his books like The Tipping Point and Blink, mm. uh, found books like Marty Seligman's Authentic Happiness and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's Flow and Barry Schwartz's The Paradox of Choice, right? Like I'd spend some of my free time in Barnes & Noble picking up some of these books and found them fascinating. I found them really useful for both my own life and my work. And I guess it was sort of during that time that I found out about the MAP program at Penn, where the whole idea was to study with some of the people who'd written these very books about how to take research and extend it and make it useful for people. So that's how I sort of how I went from studying, sort of working in business to then studying applied psychology and sort of moving more broadly into behavioral science. And that interest in my interest in work and how people live their work lives and, you know, decide what they want to do with their lives. Like at Kaplan, I was working with people applying to college and applying to graduate school and making big career choices. That's always been there for me. So now at Wharton, having the opportunity to work on research projects where I study how people think about their careers, how people manage their careers, how people can work better within their organizations follows naturally from that, even though it doesn't look like it makes sense. On my <laughs> Let's pull the thread on that note you talked about there of taking the research from some of the, the books you were reading and, and applying that. When I think about bringing behavioral research and applied psychology insights into the workplace, you know, one area that, that gets me very excited is pro-social behavior. And I don't know if this is right or not, but I define this as any action intended to help others. And I'm drawn to this topic because, you know, early on in my career, when I was really struggling, I had a really wonderful mentor at work. He took me under his wing. You know, he really helped me succeed on my first big project. He didn't have to do this. It wasn't part of his job or his responsibilities. He certainly didn't get any formal recognition or kudos for doing it. But it's an experience that I always remember, and it's shaped my behavior with my work colleagues. I tried to the best that I can to, to practice this pro-social behavior because I remember how helpful it was for me. So, Reb, you've studied pro-social behavior quite a bit. Talk about what pro-social behavior is and why it's so important to the workplace. Sure. I mean, so for me, pro -so my interest in pro-social behavior really is how do you make a positive impact on other people through your work and in your life, right? So pro-social really is just when you are working for the benefit of others, trying to be helpful, going out of your way to lend a hand, to be a mentor, to give advice, to actually sit down and do something with somebody, teaching all these different ways that we might be able to add value to other people's lives. And the question for me in my own career was, okay, well, I spend a lot of time at work, right? And a lot of my effort in life is going to go into what I do in my work. How can I steer myself to having a good impact uh, on other people. And the first time this sort of really raised its head was when I was at that job at uh, the Mint. And 
I didn't necessarily feel like at the time I didn't have a connection to how the marketing work that I was doing was having a positive impact on other people's lives. Mm. So I remember actually talking to a mentor of mine who and said, you know, hey, shouldn't I be going to become a teacher or a doctor or, you know, one of these professions that is expressly pro-social, right? Like the whole idea behind the job is to help other people. And the great bit of advice that I got from this mentor was that good people are needed everywhere, right? Whether the job is pro-social or not doesn't determine whether or not you can have a positive impact on people through the way you carry yourself in the workplace, through the way that you treat people. So he encouraged me to look at how could I be helpful in whatever job I was in. And so now when I think about this with my researcher hat on, the question is pro-sociality at work is on one hand, okay, well, how do people do things like service jobs, like teaching and healthcare and coaching and mentoring where the job itself is expressly designed to help people? And then on the other hand, how do people in all sorts of jobs be helpful to one another? And my colleague, uh, our colleague, Adam Grant, uh, is a guy I've done a lot of my work with, and he wrote a great book back in 2013 called Give and Take, really about this topic, about how to be a giver at work. And uh, the crux of that book's, book is the question of, can we be helpful to other people and at work and still be successful ourselves? Mm. Is, there, is there a shadow side to prosocial behavior? Yeah, well, that was the interesting thing that Adam found was that the short answer is, yes, you can be helpful and successful. There are givers who are disproportionately represented at the top of the success ladder in lots of different professions. But on the flip side, there are givers who end up at the bottom, right? Like they earn less money, they get burnt out more often, um, they sometimes sacrifice their own performance and productivity. So one of the things that Adam and I have studied since then is when do, when do good intentions sort of go wrong? both for the giver and for the people they're trying to help. So we wrote an article last year for Harvard Business Review called How to Beat Generosity Burnout. And that was really built off of a study we did with teachers where we looked at the research that says teachers uh, have one of the highest burnout rates across mm, professions, yeah. right? Teachers um, have a lot on their plates, a lot of demands. And oftentimes teachers get into teaching because they're pro-socially motivated. They want to make a difference in people's lives. But they can fall into a trap where all these people are coming to them asking for help, students, uh, fellow teachers, administrators, parents. And if you're really, really pro-socially motivated to the point where you're selflessly motivated, you know, you're so focused on other people that you lose track of yourself. There's been plenty of evidence to show that that can be bad for you as the teacher, right? It can burn you out. What we wanted to look at was how does that affect the students that teachers are trying to help? And what we found in the study was that the teachers who were the most selfless, who were most reactive to the help requests coming their way and more often than not would go way above and beyond in helping other people, actually ended up having lower performing classes. So That's students- really surprising in some sense, right? Because you would think that, especially in with teachers, when I think about my son who's in elementary school, I would think, oh, well, that teacher that that's really going out of his way to help my son who has ADHD going the extra mile, I would have thought, oh, yeah, like that person would definitely perform better. And I think the complication here is that person may be making an even bigger difference for your child, but the class as a whole might be suffering if the teacher is spending so much time, not just with this one particular student, but doing the same thing with all the requests that are coming their way. So being selfless here and there 
totally appropriate, often the right thing to do, often doesn't matter whether, you know, you get better performance or not. It might be the thing that we feel is just the thing that we want to do, and that's okay. Where we notice um, the impact is when being selfless becomes your default response, where more often than not, no matter who comes to you asking for help, no matter how urgent their need, no matter how well suited you are to be the person to help them, you default to trying to do whatever you can. Um, and that's where it starts to really take a toll. So given that there's, it seems like there's kind of this, you know, this fine line or this happy medium of give and take, what are some of the the purposeful habits and practices that we can cultivate to create a good form of pro-social behavior for ourselves and for our organization? Yeah, I think there the trick is recognizing that caring about other people does not mean not caring about yourself, right? So sometimes we think about selfishness and selflessness as being opposite ends of one spectrum, right? So like you can either help other people or you can help yourself. But there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that's not true. There are plenty of times where either we can create win-win solutions that are good for the people we're trying to help and good for us, or at a minimum, we can try to minimize the costs of our helping um, so that it's not as taxing on us. Uh, So a really practical example for me is... I get a fair number of meeting requests from people who want to get coffee or, you know, have a meeting to talk about an idea to learn about a particular area of research that I'm knowledgeable about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'm, I'm happy to have the conversation, but it takes time to schedule it and it takes time to get it all lined up. Right. Once I'm in the conversation, I enjoy it. I try to be helpful. It's, it's re-energizing for me. But the administration of it is like a major drain, right? It's trading 10 emails back and forth to find mm. a time where we can meet. So I use software to make it much more automated for me to schedule meetings like that. And it's a little thing that saves me, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there. But it just decreases the cost of scheduling meetings where I can then have a higher impact, right? It means that I'm spending more of my energy on the part where I'm actually hopefully providing some good resources and less of my energy on the administration, which I find particularly taxing. What program do you use? I use Calendly just because I like the interface and uh, it's been pretty helpful for me, but I'd be curious to see what you use. I've used one called Acuity Scheduling. Okay. Um, and I know somebody else who uses Time Trade. There are a bunch of different options out there. It's really about finding the one that just happens to work with the other apps that you use and um, requires as little sort of ongoing maintenance as possible. At least yeah. from my perspective. <laughs> Reduce the uh, the administrative cost is, is always important. Totally. <laughs> uh, one of the things I've referenced often on this show is how I've struggled early in my career. It took me probably a good three to four years to figure things out. And, and part of figuring things out for me was identifying and cultivating meaningful work and ultimately a meaningful career. I know I wasn't the only one because many of my work colleagues and even my friends from college, we struggled with the same thing. You know, we all struggled with this challenge. And I know this is an area of interest for you and expertise. Share with us, if you would, what makes a meaningful career? Great question. Um, <laughs> if you managed to figure it out in three or four years, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I didn't figure it out, but I was, uh, I, I'll, I'll say this. I, I was able to find more meaning in my career than when I first started. And, you know, it, part of it was maybe, me being a little bit uh, hard-headed about things, but I won't say that I figured it out, but I found things that worked for me. Maybe I'll say that. Sure. Uh, One of my favorite quotes about writing that I think applies to lots of different things, including careers, is a quote that um, writing a novel is like driving a car at night. 
you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make it the whole way driving like that. <laughs> and I think the same thing really applies to careers, right? Like we spend a lot of time thinking about our careers when we're, you know, teenagers and in our early 20s. And some people keep right on thinking about it all throughout their lives. Um, but there's a sort of intense focus on what are we going to do for the rest of our lives during those formative years where you're making those early choices. And my sense is that most people don't figure out the destination that they're going to at that point, right? That for most people, it's more like driving a car at night where you can see however many years down the road, right? Like maybe for some people it's six months and for other people it's two years or five years. Some people see 10 or 20 years down the road where they want to be. However far your headlights happen to go, it's a matter of figuring out, well, what's going to get you further down the road? And as I've looked at different research on what provides people fulfillment from work, I've tended to see it in terms of four main buckets of things that people are seeking from work at different stages of their life and career. So one is rewards, right? So jobs are things that we often do to make money and get benefits and support the things that we want to do in our life outside of work, right? So our jobs, on one hand, are things that provide us rewards uh, that we can then use for other things that we find meaningful. So one way that work can be made meaningful uh, is to make sure that it's rewarding at least enough. Second thing that we're often looking for in work is results, right? We want to see that we're actually doing something of value. For some people, that's pro-social value, right? Like they want to see that they're having a tangible impact on other people's lives. For other people, it's creative output, right? Like you want to see that you've produced something that you had a vision for and brought something new into the world. And for other people, it's much simpler. It's like, did I make progress on a project that I'm working on, you know, at the moment? And did I move it forward a little bit? That's uh, great work by Teresa Mabale on the progress principle, where often a good day at work is one where you've made at least a little bit of meaningful progress on a project that you care about. And a bad day at work is one where you don't make any meaningful progress or you have a, a real setback on a project. I think that's an interesting area too, because you know, early on I may have defined progress or value as only the project that I'm working on. And one of the things that I learned along the way is that there are other ways to make progress. There are other ways to make value. I read um, some writing by John Maxwell and he talked about uh, this idea of being of service to other people, right? So even if you're not necessarily successful on your project at hand or the effort at hand, you can also be successful as you're being uh, of service to other people. And that was something that really helped me get through some of the maybe the tougher early years when I felt like I wasn't being as successful with the the actual work as maybe I could have been. I don't know if that's you know something that you come across in your research or not, but I mean it's a great example. I think the the flip side or the tricky thing there is. Even when we're thinking about service to other people, progress is important. Um, so there's a lot of research on what's called compassion fatigue, which is sort of the burnout that we can experience when sort of constantly being in an environment where we feel like we've got a lot of people to help. Mm. And some of the more recent research on compassion fatigue is that being in one of those caring professions is often most exhausting when we see people that we want to be of service to, but we feel like we can't or we're not being effective. So we can look to, okay, how can we have that positive impact? But if we feel like we're not making progress and we're trying to help people, but they're not responding for any number of reasons, that can still be really draining. And so that's because, so the third bucket, uh, just to quickly round those out, is relationships, right? So 
Chris Peterson, positive psychology, famously said that other people matter is sort of one of the like the shortest way to sum up a bunch of the research on what makes life and work fulfilling for people. And I take that two ways. Other people matter means in part that relationships have the opportunity to add a lot of value to our work lives when we can connect with our colleagues, when we can connect with our customers or the community that we work in. On the flip side, there's a lot of evidence that relationships at work can be really <laughs> taxing and exhausting too. Um, I'm going to come back are, to that. I have an interesting question, I think, on that very subject. Sure. Lots of, lots of people have had the, you know, that colleague who just gets on their nerves for whatever reason. Or <laughs> I wrote a piece with Adam Grant and Rob Cross a couple of years ago on collaborative overload, which is the sort of phenomenon where so many people are in jobs now where they spend most of their day in meetings, responding to emails, and otherwise interacting with people, and there's no time left for working independently. So relationships can add a lot of value, but it's not automatic. And then we can come back to the relationship. Just the roundup. Fourth one is uh, respect, right? So does does your work offer you opportunities to learn and grow and develop, and to have that growth be sort of seen and recognized by other people? So I'll stop going on there. We can go into any one of those or move on to another topic. But that's the way I tend to see like the quest- broad question of what makes for a meaningful career is. Does it give you opportunities to learn and grow? Does it give you opportunities to make meaningful connections with people? Does it give you opportunities to create some kind of tangible results, either for other people or for some vision that you have? And does it support the things that you find meaningful outside of work? And at different stages in life, different things are going to become important. I know when I found out a couple of years ago that my wife and I were expecting our first child all of a sudden rewards became a lot more meaningful because they were tied to family motivation. And indeed a couple of colleagues uh, have recently done a study on how family motivation, seeing your work as an opportunity to provide for your family can really add significant meaning, even to quite mundane uh, or, or boring or sort of taxing parts of work. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways that resonates with me in the sense that there may have been times where work has been, less exciting or boring. But at the same time, when you're married and you have kids, there is a certain purpose uh, and meaning to your life of taking care of your kids and providing for them, providing for their future. So that certainly would motivate me. I want you to pay special attention to this next question I have for Reb, especially if you struggle with disconnecting from work like I do. And I like to think of myself as, as an enlightened cat and forward thinking. But one area I find myself struggling is when I go home from work during the week or on vacation, I'm checking my work emails often and I'll tell myself it will make my life easier because when I return to work, I won't be as stressed. I tell my wife the same thing when she's playfully chiding me, Reb, what am I doing wrong here? And what implications does that have on my rest and recovery from work? I'd say you're doing the same things that I'm doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this, this might be one where it's better to do as I say, not as I do. Uh, <laughs> I find this stuff really hard too. There's a lot of research though on, you know, it's not just a matter of taking time off from work, but actually how we spend our time away from work has a big impact on whether we actually recharge and replenish and come back to work sort of ready to go for the next day or the next week. So Sabina Sonnentag's a researcher who's done a lot of work in this area. Uh, and in particular, she finds that one of the biggest predictors of whether time away from work is a recovery experience is uh, what she calls or what they call psychological detachment, right? So when you're away from work, do you stop thinking about work, right? Uh, if you 
are away from work, you're out of the office, but you're still thinking about work, then odds are it might not actually be a replenishing time period for you. Um, there are exceptions to that, particularly like if you're super intrinsically interested in your work. I was recently sent a paper that uh, intrinsic workaholics don't have the same negative consequences as extrinsically motivated workaholics. So it depends on what kind of workaholic you are. Uh, <laughs> But still, um, in general, most people uh, tend to be more replenished from work when they actually get their mind off of work. Now, um, I think one of the mistakes that I make and that I suspect other people make is that we assume that really all we need to do is switch off. Uh, and the way I think about it now after reading some of this research is that it's not enough to switch off, but we actually have to switch modes, right? So what do you mean get- by switching modes? Yeah, so we need to get out of work mode, but it's not just enough to stop being at work. We actually need to try to actively do something different. So one mode might be relaxation mode, uh, right? So relaxation mode would be actually intentionally engaging in whatever activity you find helps you really wind down, right? So maybe for some people, it's taking a bath or getting out into nature. Or for me, sometimes it's watching a movie, but not just throwing something randomly on from a Netflix queue, <laughs> but actually like dimming the lights and setting up the like movie theater environment with like proper snacks and the like. So it's like, okay, I'm getting into movie watching mode as opposed to just flipping on whatever will occupy my brain for a few minutes. So that's relaxation mode. Social mode would be another one. Uh, right. So where we act actively try to make it a point to go interact with other people, whether that's our family or friends, or maybe it's physical activity mode or even volunteering mode. Research suggests that these are all different types of experiences that if we engage in them while we're away from work, it has it helps us psychologically detach from work because not only are we not trying to not think of work. We're not trying to just avoid work. We're actually trying to actively engage with something else, which helps our mind switch to another mode of working, which then helps us recover and refocus when we come back to work. What are the, and from a bottom line perspective, what are the, if, if we do that, what are the implications for us both, I guess, personally and professionally? Like, what are the good benefits that come from that? So I think they're twofold. So one, just just from a work perspective, the more we engage in effective rest and recovery experiences, the less likely we are to get burnt out over time, and the more likely we are to stay engaged and energized and motivated at our work. Uh, Engaging in better recovery experiences outside of work can actually help us enjoy our work and be more productive and be less likely to get burnt out on the one hand. On the other hand, it also means that you're doing more interesting stuff in your time off and you're getting you're probably getting more value from the time you spend, whether that's with your family or friends or even just with yourself, depending on what those activities are, because you're not just using them as a way to escape work, but you're actually engaging with those tasks intentionally as well. So I have a good argument then for my boss when I tell him, look. I need to go on my daily uh, lunchtime hike because I will be a better worker when I come back is what you're telling me. <laughs> I think there's actually just a study on this that like people who see rest as part of work actually are more productive and higher performers. Like think about athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Or concert musicians. They don't see their jobs as just the time that they're on stage performing a concert or in the field during the actual game. Part of their job is actually all the preparation that goes into being ready to perform 
And most of us at work don't separate out game time from practice and rest time. But from a performance perspective, it would make sense that actually those things are part of what helps us perform better. So why do we treat them as not part of work? Yeah, it seems like it's it's accepted in in the sports world. You know, when I one of my favorite players is Roger Federer, and he talked about when he took six months off for a knee injury. Not only was that in itself kind of replenishing, and but also he said, you know, when I'm when I'm playing on the tour, I have to make sure that I'm in bed by eight o'clock and that I sleep until eight o'clock in the morning. I need twelve hours of of sleep to literally rest and recover. And so it's interesting that it's that it's accepted in, in the kind of that domain of life, but not, or maybe it's changing, but in the, uh, in our professional work life, I'll say it's not as been as uh, well received yet. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of an organization that talks about this stuff is um, Basecamp. Uh, they make project management software and other tools. And they, the founders of that company have written a bit about some of these issues, particularly like in the tech industry where there's often an ethos of working really, really hard uh, in order to be first to market or to develop some new product. Um, and uh, that might work for some people, especially for, like I was saying before, like the intrinsically motivated workaholics who just love their job so much that it's not draining to keep on working. But for the rest of us, you know, Basecamp talks about how to actually be more productive with less time on task. And they try to build some of that into their software. So they have um, sort of quiet hours functionality where you can sort of set that your notifications won't show up uh, mm. during certain parts of the day so that you're not distracted as often or so that you're not reminded about work when you're outside of the office. Yeah, that's really good because I know right now, I have to do a lot of manual things on my computer and different, you know, uh, like Outlook and some of my messaging programs that we use at work and things like that. I have to manually kind of set things each time. And it's somewhat of a, we talked about that administrivia cost. There's a, there's an administrivia cost to me having to set that each, each day. Right. So that makes sense that they would do that. Totally. One area that makes work stressful sometimes and why it's so important to recover is working with challenging or even I'll just say bad colleagues all of us have run into this situation at some point in our working careers, or most of us have. I had a project just last year where I ended up having to work with a few colleagues uh, that were, I hate to say it, but they were dishonest and, and they basically lacked integrity. What is applied positive psychology, what does that say about what we can do in those moments? I don't know how much positive psychology has to say about it, because positive psychology very often has this mindset of focusing on what works and trying to do more of that. But there's plenty of, you know, psychology and more broadly research that wrestles with this question. A couple of my sort of favorite resources on this topic are one is you know, the flip side of Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, was not just about givers, but was about what he called takers. Um, and takers are people who are primarily motivated out of self-interest. It might not be that takers are actually trying to take advantage of everybody that they meet. It's just that they're so focused on their own goals that they often don't realize the consequences um, that their actions are having on other people around them. And so one of the things that you know Adam suggests for people who are givers or even uh, what he calls matchers to do differently is to engage in what he calls sincerity screening when people are asking for help or um, trying to work with you or collaborate with you. And sincerity screening is basically trying to gauge, is this person making this request of me because they have a sincere need for help or because there's like an appropriate sort of role-based reason why they're asking me for this question? 
Or is this request coming because they just don't want to do that particularly boring task and they're <laughs> trying to punt it off to me, right? Or because maybe it's because they don't feel confident in their ability to do it and they're sort of compensating for their unwillingness to figure out what they need to do to learn and develop in those areas. Um, or maybe it's just become a bad habit on their part. But sincerity screening is basically thinking about, okay, well, is this person coming with sincere intention and question? And sometimes we're not very good at reading that, but as best we can, thinking about how we respond. So in particular, not being one of those selfless givers in response to people who might be making insincere requests. So when you're dealing with takers, or somebody you perceive to be a taker, mm -hmm. then trying to figure out what's their actual underlying motivation. And either A, do you need to have a direct conversation about that to figure out what's really going on? Or B, do you need to find a way to just sort of protect yourself against the costs that that will place on you? The other uh, person who's written a lot about this is Bob Sutton, an organizational researcher who's written the asshole books, pardon my language. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what, was, actually, what was the name of these books? Uh, he's got a new one out actually just at the moment, or is just about to come out called uh, the asshole survival guide. And one of the original <laughs> ones was the no asshole. That's Bowl. awesome. And it's all about, uh, these are the actual book titles. So, but it's all about how to deal with the people at work who treat you poorly. And, uh, he's studied this in a range of different contexts and now come out with a sort of book about express like actions that you can do to engage with these folks. Uh, one last resource that comes from the map community is David Paulet is a map alum from one of the very first classes, if not the first class of the map program. And he wrote a book called the law of the garbage truck. And uh, the law of the garbage truck is how to respond to people who dump on you basically over time. And uh, I think these all have great ideas for how to deal with those folks. Man, you, you stole my next question. I was going to ask you about uh, some book recommendations. You know, I, I was gonna say, you know, one of one of my favorite things about you is, is your ability to write compelling and persuasive uh, articles. But I also remember, you know, when you TA my class, uh, you always had great feedback and tips on writing, and you always had great recommendations for books and articles. Are there any other books? Um, that if you stop to think about jump out to you that had a really great impact on you? Uh, I mean, books that have had a great impact on me, there have been so many. I sort of blame Malcolm Gladwell for where I'm at right <laughs> now because honest, quite honestly, it was his books that first got me interested in a lot of these topics and um, got me interested in how can we communicate about research findings in ways that uh, people find interesting and useful. Honestly, for me these days, I don't get as much time to read. For me, it's podcasts uh, more often uh, than books these days because podcasts let me get into new ideas. So some of the ones I listen to at the moment are um, Hidden Brain is a great NPR yeah, podcast that talks about psychology findings, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. There's a bunch of them I'm drawing blanks on right now. Specific to some of the topics that we've talked about today, um, so one, I mentioned Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, uh, sort of foundational, great book mm -hmm. on this topic of pro-social motivation at work. There's also uh, Tom Rath uh, has written a number of books, including the Strengths Finder books, uh, but he's written books on well-being at work, a book called Are You Fully Charged, which really gets into some of the things that make a difference, like the daily habits that you were talking about for what makes a, a good or bad day at work. Emily Esfahani Smith has written a great book about meaning about in life in general, but that also has some great 
practical things that you can do in the workplace. Um, there's so many more that I probably rattle off, but those are some of the <laughs> coming to mind as most relevant to what we've talked about. So yeah, that's, that's great. Oh, one more. This, this is how my brain works. There's a book called Rest, uh, which is specifically about um, how to actively or how to intentionally use rest and recovery time for sort of better work and life experiences. Okay. Uh, so in the spirit of, of give and take, I will offer a book that I'm reading now. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Heard of it, never read it. So uh, I was kind of skeptical at first to read it because it's it's more, I mean, it's an older book uh, that falls more into the kind of, I'll say, the Tony Robbins line of, of books. Uh, I mean, the guy who wrote it, Napoleon Hill, is not a, he wasn't a psychologist. Um, in some ways, he was kind of a, you know, the, the yesteryear's uh, motivational speaker. But I will say that it's a pretty interesting book and he has a lot of interesting uh, or unique insights in there uh, to take away in terms of, finding uh, ways to be successful and to find value and meaning in your life as well. So for what it's worth, if uh, I know you, you you don't have as much time to, you know, full books these days because your, your plate's pretty full, but I would definitely uh, recommend it. I'll check it out. One non sort of psychology book uh, that I'll throw in there is David White. So this sort of poet and philosopher wrote a book called The Three Marriages. Uh, mm. And it's, it's about this idea that we have three marriages in life. One is the one we tend to think of when we hear the word marriage, right? Our romantic or relational marriage. But we also have, uh, he argues, a marriage with our career and a marriage with ourself. And and then he sort of makes a call for figuring out how to get a marriage across those three marriages as sort of the key to sort of figuring out, uh, for lack of a better phrase, work-life balance. But he sort of uses the marriage frame for thinking about the fact that we relate to our, we have as long of a relationship with our career, sometimes longer than we do with our spouse. Um, and we have an even longer relationship with ourselves. And, and so thinking about each of those relationships as a marriage in and of itself, and then thinking about how those three marriages relate to one another, uh, it's just a really, it's beautifully written. Um, and just like helps, has helped me think about things in quite different ways at times. All right. I'm adding it to my list. Excellent. Reb, today was such an interesting conversation. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it and how much I'm taking away from it. I got this book recommendation right now and uh, and a lot of other good stuff. I know my listeners will as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a joy to chat with you. You can connect with Reb online through a variety of ways. His Twitter handle is at Reb Rebelly. That's at R-E-B-R-E-B-E-L-E. And his website is rebrebelly.com, R-E-B-R-E-B-E-L-E.com. All the links and resources Reb and I discussed, including the articles he wrote for Harvard Business Review, you're not going to want to miss those. And the Basecamp project management software can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 007. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. And hey, if you give it a five-star rating and review, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a small way to say thanks. One such person is Emily Mintman. Emily, thanks for your support and the five-star rating or review. I'm glad you're loving the show. That's it for today. I'll see you all next time.